prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and to look at your word and to just to see more of the truth that's from your word and ask you to lead and guide in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at living stones, that we are living stones when we, are, when we accept Christ. And we're going to be in 1 Peter 2 to start with, starting at verse 4. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. To whom, coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, you also as lively stones are built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also is it contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. We're going to look at this verse and... It starts out in verse 4 talking about Jesus, to whom as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. So it starts out talking about Jesus. And Jesus is considered the chief cornerstone. And this verse 6 quotes from Psalm 118. So I want to just quickly look at Psalm 118. Just so you can see where it's quoted from. Verse 22, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is, a, it is marvelous in our eyes. So it says that Jesus would be, be rejected. And then we want to look at Isaiah 28. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. So again, we're looking at the Messianic prophecy. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the, the, the stone which, upon which the whole building rests. And the building that he's referring to is the church that he's building. And that is us believers. And so we want, we want to look at this. And it starts out there uh, just quickly. Matthew 21.42, Acts 4.11, and Ephesians 2.20 all quote that verse. Uh, so it was a, quite a foundation when... when the apostles understood this. They really put it in lots of different places, and Jesus talked about it as well, that he was the chief cornerstone and that he was going to be rejected of men. And this is, you know, this is a hard thing for us to sometimes think about. You know, oftentimes we think, of, well, if somebody does good, everybody's going to like them, and they're, they're going to be very popular, and Jesus was very popular with some, but also very unliked by others. He upset their power structure, and... He was rejected. He was rejected by the very ones who should have understood who he was, the scribes and Pharisees and the priests. They should have understood who he was. They understood the Messianic scriptures. They understood the, the prophecies. Why didn't they believe? Because he represented authority and didn't agree with them on every point of what they taught. Uh, you know, because the Pharisees and the scribes made all these different rules. I mean, you couldn't walk more than a Sabbath day's journey on Sabbath from home on your Sabbath. So what they did, they made up rules that, you know, a Sabbath day's walk, they would put something that, that belonged to them and said, well, here, I'm still at home, and go another Sabbath day walk and do the same thing. So that basically they were breaking even their own rules. And, and God never said you couldn't walk around on the Sabbath. He didn't say, you know, but they considered it work. And the problem is that they had increased the law so greatly that it became a burden. You know, God said to honor the Sabbath and don't do any work, but that didn't, you know, they, they took it so far 
and I've, and I've and I've shared with you I've I've seen a six seven hundred page book that's everything you can and can't do on the Sabbath, okay, or the or the laws, but basically the Sabbath is the biggest thing that they look at. I mean, the book had more information than the Bible altogether because they had broken down every little thing you could or could not do, and God just said honor it. And that's why when Jesus and the disciples were walking through the field and they, on, on the Sabbath and the, and the disciples pulled off grain and just, and just started eating the grain. We, doesn't, we don't, don't know what kind of grain, but you know, most grain can be just eaten right off the stalk. And they accused them of working on the Sabbath because they just <laughs> pulled a, a head of uh, some kind of fruit off, the, off the, the plant and started eating it. And so they had all these laws. They had all these rules. Jesus didn't follow their laws. He followed God's laws. And they did not like the idea that he was going to upset their authority. And that's the biggest thing, their pride. <laughs> you know, we're telling them how they need to live and he's telling them something different. And they couldn't fight with him because he stuck to the scriptures, he just didn't follow the 90 million <laughs> additions to the law that they had they had make and it's and the Jews have this men, mentality build a big fence around the law so you don't accidentally violate the law and that's what they did and Jesus violated their big fence laws and he says I haven't violated God's law but I'm violating your laws your burdens and if you've ever been around somebody who seems to be losing their power they get very desperate and fight very hard to keep their power uh, you'll see it all over the place you know, you see it in gangs and, and, and thugs. You'll see it in, in just everyday relationships. If, you know, if just between two friends sometimes, they can get to bitter blows if one is trying to, one thinks that the other one is trying to usurp their, you know, they were the one seeming to be in power and the other one starts growing and getting out from it. That one will, there'll be fights and arguments and, and all of that. So we see it in all aspects of life. Uh, anytime there's a change, and Jesus represented a big change to the Pharisees. Because he came in and saying, uh, you guys are hypocrites, basically, is what he was telling them. You're hypocrites. You, you called them serpents, whitewashed sepulchers. Uh, basically saying you're putting on a good show, but you're not living it. Uh, when the woman was caught in, in the very act of adultery and they brought just her, obviously one of them <laughs> was with her to be caught in the act. So they should have brought both of them according to the law, and they only brought one. And so all these different things that they did, they, they would violate laws if it meant, you know, it was for their benefit. And then Jesus was the rejected stone. He was the righteous one. Now, the, the scribes and Pharisees probably would have rejected somebody like Moses, okay, because Moses would have, had, would have condemned them for their position, just as he did all through the five books of the law. We know that they rejected Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. All the other prophets were rejected by the people because they called them to true righteousness instead of the show, show righteousness. And we see it even in the Christian church. where We talk about it all the time, how people try to look good and try to follow rules rather than let God work out of them and become, become righteous, become holy. Uh, we don't Holiness and righteousness is not something we do. It is something that we become because it is a fruit. God dwelling in us produces them. And the scribes did not like that. The Pharisees did not like that. The priests did not like that. Now, we had the two occasions where Jesus walked in and drove the money changers out of the, out of the temple. And they were playing games with people. They would look over their, their 
offerings and say, no, this one's got a blemish. You have to buy one of ours. And they would basically steal that lamb for practically nothing, sell them a lamb at an, an exorbitant price, and then put that lamb that they had just stolen into the, into the pen to be sold to somebody else. Uh, you know, so they were cheating everybody. And, you know, it was happening all the time. And Jesus drove them out saying, you're not going to turn this into a den of, you know, a den of thieves. Or, and they hated him. <laughs> and anybody challenged usually gets their dander up and, you know, strikes back. And Jesus attacked the, the leaders for their hypocrisy. And we see it all through the scriptures. Jesus wasn't the only one. The prophets oftentimes were told, go to the king, go to the temple and tell them, you know, thus saith the Lord, you're... You know, basically, you're hypocrites. You know, get right and you know, quit doing what you're doing, and then they'd be punished and/or killed. And Jesus was no different. They treated him as any other prophet, and in this case, he's the son and the Messiah, and they treat him just as bad. And the fact that he didn't come as the Messiah as they expected. The Jews even today are looking for their Messiah that's going to make them the center of the world and all worship going to to Jerusalem. They're still you know, the, you know, well, the conservatives, the or Orthodox Jews are still looking for a Messiah. Many of the Jews are just atheists, and, you know, they're not looking for anything. They're just there. Uh, they'll admit that God gave them back their land to one degree. Even though they tend to be atheists, they'll still think, we got our land that is given to us and that belongs to us. Why they believe it belongs to them when they're an atheist, I have no idea. Uh, but they do. And... They're looking for that Messiah, the one who's going to establish the kingdom. And the kingdom that we know will be the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. And, as, you know, God will come back, take our church out. All hell will break loose on, on this earth. And God will come back and establish Jerusalem as the head, headquarters for the entire world. And he'll rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And even into the eternity, because, we, you know, John said, I, I saw a new heaven, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So the, the new Jerusalem will be ruled from all of eternity. And we'll, all that stuff we'll get to in about a year and a half. So, but they, he wasn't what they expected. You know, they, they looked for a military leader at their time. It was like, who's going to deliver us from Rome and establish us in Rome? Basically, who's going to deliver us from Rome and establish us in Rome's place? And Jesus didn't do that. So they, they wanted, um, I remember my mother-in-law said, one of the reasons why they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah was that he wasn't a warrior. He wasn't the warrior, he wasn't the king, he didn't come back and deliver them and start a kingdom. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a Messiah who's going to establish the kingdom. Whether he does it peacefully or, or through a war, or but whatever, he still has to, by their desire, and by ours, you know, he's going to establish his kingdom at the end when he comes back as a warrior. And in Revelation 6, there's that transition from Jesus being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world to the conquering king. And there's a huge difference between the seals and the vial and the bold judgments when everything intensifies. He becomes very, almost vicious. There's almost a viciousness as he's going to prove to the world who he is. And then when he comes back, and kills the entire armies that are coming against him uh, in Jerusalem and sets his kingdom up. So yeah, they are right. They're looking for a king. They just missed all the parts that say the king was going to suffer, was going to die, and was going to resurrect. And, that, and so they were looking for the wrong 
thing when they were looking for Jesus. And it's easy to do. It's easy to do when we get into these. And this is one of the reasons I'm very careful when I talk about eschatology or end times is it's all in the future. We've got to be careful that we don't do the same thing in our, t in our teachings, you know, have this big valley that's between what they were looking at and what really happened. And so we just have to be careful. Uh, I, and when I teach Revelation, I'm not going to be dogmatic about pra practically anything because it's in the future. I can say this has been fulfilled, you know, this is being fulfilled, this is how it can be fulfilled, but it's not going to be a lot of dog dogmatic statements because it's all in the future and many people have been wrong many times. Uh, I've been studying off and on since the, since the 70s and a lot of things that they thought were absolute truth has changed a lot in that 40 years of study of this uh, topic. And so they didn't believe it. He didn't, he didn't fulfill their expectations. They rejected him. And it was re but it was recorded that they would. So in one sense, it was exactly what God knew was going to happen. And it allows him to set up the church. The 69 weeks of Daniel that you guys will be getting ready to go into a little bit, you know, were covered when Jesus entered into the triumphant entry as the king. And then we have the last week of Daniel, which will be the tribulation period, and the church is ruled in between. When God takes out the church, he'll go back to Israel and say, okay, Israel, we're dealing with you again. And during that time, they will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. They'll recognize, number one, they'll start with the Antichrist and then realize that they put their trust in the wrong person and turn, turn to Jesus. And uh, lots of excitement to come, lots of hard times to come. So that's in a long, long-winded way. That's why they rejected Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and he says, verse 5, You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house of holy priesthood to offer sac spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So he calls us lively stones. And, and lively in both these verses is the word zoe, which means life. But it means true life. It means... A, uh, spiritual life in the New Testament. It's as opposed to our bios, bios life, which is just general life. Uh, we use, you, we have that term bio in biology, the study of life, and, and we also have it in zoology, which is the study of animals in particular and the way they live. And in this case, it's saying that you are zoe stones. <laughs> And that's rock uh, stones being used to build a building. So we are living stones to build a living temple. And it's kind of hard for us to understand, but Jesus is the rejected living stone, the, the, the cornerstone. We are, with him in us, part of that spiritual temple. And very important for us to look at this is we are special to him. And it's hard for me to imagine how people are special to God, you know, because we don't deserve it. And we really have to get into that mentality. We don't deserve anything from God, and he gives us everything. He gave us Jesus. Those of us who accept, us, accept him, he's given us life. And this is important for us to understand that God gives us everything, and it's all by grace. We don't deserve anything but death. And it's an amazing thought. We don't deserve anything but death, and God still gives us everything. And I never seem to forget that. It, it just mind, it's mind-boggling to me, and I've said it over and over again. It's amazing that God even created people knowing what they were going to do, 
knowing that he was going to lose most of the people to not choose him because Jesus said many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And so the majority of the people are going to reject Christ and be lost eternally. And yet God created man and then sent his son to die for them or himself to die for them. You know, it's just an amazing thought. And then he gives us the grace. And I cannot get over it. It, it helps keep you humble when you, can, when you keep it in mind because there's really nothing that we deserve. No matter how well or how little, much or how little we're being used by God, it's still his grace. It's him that's done it. Now, some of it is us letting him crucify us and using us more. Uh, if you don't want to be crucified by God and you fight every bit, then you won't be used as much by God. But it's still him that does the crucifixion. It's him that uses you. And as he showed in the life of Paul, or Saul, you, he can virtually make somebody do what they want. You know, and I've said over and over, knocking him off, the, off, the, off this horse and saying, you know, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul still could have said, I'm not going to accept you. Now, nobody in their right mind would have seen the bright light, heard the voice, and knew who they were talking to would have, would have rejected him. But he still had that technical <laughs> choice to. Uh, but when you see that much power from God, you're not, you're not going to reject him. Uh, so God does this. And we, and, we've, and we hear the stories from, the, from usually Muslims in the Middle East that tell about seeing visions of Jesus and, and turning to him. Because they're truly wanting to follow, follow after God and they don't know what it is and God then shows them. Their heart desires him and he shows them who it is that they're really desiring because Satan can't take true worship and so God will show people I'm the one you're I'm the one you're supposed to worship and turn them from their their uh, Muslim ways to become Christian and he will make sure and this is why he says no one will be without excuse when they stand before the father they he'll have done whatever it took to share that with them whatever light or whatever knowledge they need will be revealed and Again, we read, if you read stories about missionaries that have gone to the jungles of South America or, or the jungles of Africa in the early days, and they get out to these tribes and they go, they start the message and they go, oh, we've been waiting for the rest of the message. Okay, they had some part of the message and that they had gotten in a vision or a dream and they knew how to follow as far as they knew, and they would hear the rest of the message and it would just resonate with them and they go, oh, finally, we're getting the, the rest of this message. You know, God had shown them what they needed to know. And that's just why God will do what it takes to bring people to him. And we want to be true that we are lively stones. We are, the, we are built into the church and the church is individuals. And I share this over and over. The church is not this big building here or a little building, whatever you want to call this. It's, it's not this building in chloride. It's the people within the building that know him as their Lord and Savior. And the, the word in Greek for church is ecclesia, and it means to be a called-out assembly. It's a group of people that are called out to assemble for a message to be given to them, and that is what we are. We're called out. We can meet in here. We could meet out in the park if we wanted to. We could go up on the mountain. Wherever God wanted to bring the church together, we could do. We could meet at somebody's house, and we're still the church. And we are the lively stones built up into this church that goes out and, and shows God who, we, who he is. And then 
you know, Peter goes on in here in verse 9, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or actually uncommon people, that you should show forth the praises of him that has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who the church is. The church is a chosen group. God chooses us. Now we have to respond to that choice, but and he calls, he does call the world. And there's a special call for those who, have, who are going to, to receive him. Now he knew who was going to receive them, and he has, and as in the case of Paul, kind of forced some people into making a decision because of they, they were gifted in certain ways to be able to, to meet out chosen a royal priesthood and this is kind of an interesting statement especially when given to any Jew the the royal line is Judah the priest line is Levi and to have a royal priesthood for Jews doesn't make a lot of sense because and that's part of what they never understood about the Messiah because it was said that he was going to be a king and a priest and they're going well he has to be from Judah and from Levi how can he be both and that's why in Hebrews it talks about uh, priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was the, the king, king priest who met Abraham after the battle, and Abraham gave him a tithe of everything. And it says Melchizedek without father, without mother. And there are many that believe that Melchizedek was actually a uh, Christophany. It was a picture of Jesus coming to him and being honored. Uh, there's others that say, no, there was a real town called Salem, and there was. It became Jerusalem, uh, and this was the king from there. So there's controversy. I'm not going to take a big stance other than I believe that he was Jesus. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of sense of him giving the tithe to just any king. Uh, but I would never get dogmatic. If somebody wants to sit and believe the other way, it's not going to hurt my feelings at all uh, because there's, there's no real stance on that. Uh, there's no real proof of it one way or the other. It could have been a real person or it could have been Jesus. But we are built up a holy priesthood to offer sacrifice. And we've talked about sacrifice a little while ago. And that sacrifice always had to be of something that belongs to you, that cost you something, had to be given freely. A true sacrifice had to be given freely. If it was taken from you, That's not a sacrifice. it's not a sacrifice. You know, if God said you must do this, is not really a sacrifice, and that's why, in one sense, Passover is not a sacrifice for those who are being doing it just because. For those who are giving it because they want to, then it's a sacrifice. And much of our service for God is that way. There's things that God tells us we should do. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, for some people, it's just duty. They go to church because it is duty and it's what they have to do. Some people is a sacrifice because they desire to give God something of their time. And when it's a desire that you want, it's a different, you have a different attitude. You have a different attitude when it's something you desire to do for God. It's a sacrifice, but not a, not a sacrifice that's hurting you or that's being grudgingly given. It's a sacrifice to say, God, I'm going to give you my time. I could be doing anything with this time. Uh, and I could be doing anything for football, for football fanatics or NASCAR fanatics. You know, it's like, God, I could be watching the football game or, or, or the race right now, but I'm giving it to you. And I'm choosing to do it for you. As opposed to, well, I'm grudgingly, I'm missing the game. Now, would this pastor shut up so I can get to the game? You know, and I've seen lots of people do that. 
uh, you know, maybe not say it out loud, but they're watching their watch, you know, like, okay, I've missed, I've missed the first quarter, I'm getting ready to miss the second quarter, and boy, this guy's going on forever, I'm, missing, I'm going to miss the whole game if he keeps talking. Uh, but sacrifice, sacrifice of praise, spending time with God through choice, not just because he says to do it, and there are lots of things he says to do, he wants us to keep the keep keep the the laws and to be, keep his commandments, but he's also not sitting there beating us over the head when we don't do it because he knows that we can't. He knows the only way we can do it is through him coming out of us, and he just wants us to be willing to make that sacrifice, willing to stay on the altar as he kills our flesh through crucifixion of our flesh to be able to raise us up in victory. And so we're to give those, we're to give those sacrifices, we're to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse, <laughs> Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom we are also a builded, we are also builded together in a, for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So this one goes into... We are not strangers and foreigners with God. Because we have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ's salvation and sacrifice, we are fellow citizens. And this is quite a, quite a powerful verse. We are aliens. When, when we before we're saved, we're at home in the world. This is our citizenship. The world is our home. We're, we're headed to hell, don't, not knowing it, but we're headed where the world is going. We accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we switch our citizenship right in the middle of our life to a heavenly citizenship. We are no longer at home in the world. We are foreigners and strangers to the world and not to God. And this should be important for us because if I get comfortable with the world, then I have to say, is Christ in me and, and really convicting me? As listening to the radio just before then, this, the, the teacher was talking about holiness. The closer we get to God, the more holy he makes us, the less comfortable we feel in the world. The less comfortable we will feel as we watch the, what the world does. The movies we watch, the music we listen to, the people we hang out with, the language they, they use, the language we use, slowly becomes more and more holy. And we get more and more convicted when we say the, you know, do the wrong things or say the wrong things. Or, and, and allow others to do the wrong things. And hopefully you guys are starting to notice that as you're getting closer to God, you know what I'm talking about. Something that used to be said around you that was okay is no longer okay. Things that you used to watch are no longer okay to watch. Things that you hear are no longer okay to be listened to. And it's not because somebody's pounding you over the head and saying, you've got to change, you've got to change. It's because Christ is working out of you. And I know it's true for me. I, more and more I walk with him, the more I'm... As, sensitive to different things and I'm getting to the place where all my movies will probably be removed you know that use God's name in vain not that I have a whole lot of them but there's a few of them still in my collection that I really like as far as the movie goes 
and wish that they would just take out all the using God's name in vain, but because of that I may end up throwing them away even though I like the movie. And this is something that I've been starting to get convicted of. I hear it and it just grades on my hearing, it grades on my, on my, on my, when I hear it. And what do we do? How do we follow God? Because he is making us holy. He is making us a citizenship of God. And then we're built into the foundation where Jesus is the cornerstone, but it says of the apostles and the prophets who all talked for God. We build our life upon the word of God is basically what it's talking about. That, that, that foundation of the word of God. And it says we're fitly framed together. And this is kind of an interesting, interesting structure because fitly joined together means joined closely. Okay, the church of God is joined closely together to form the, the, the body of Christ. And in one sense, the idea of being lively stones is, is just saying that we're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ where many are brought into one and one, one is made up of many parts. Just as our body is one body, you know, but many different parts and cells to the point of trillions of cells in our in our body all working together for one purpose we as the church work together even though we're many we should be working together for one purpose which is part of the process of having many churches all over the place it's not like everybody from chloride has to go down to golden valley to be able to go to church because there's only one one place that you can meet you know it's he's got one church here in chloride that ministers to what chloride needs and the things that college park does or Golden Valley Baptist or First Southern on Wallapai Mountain Road does is for their areas and what they do may probably would not work here and what we do here probably wouldn't be very effective there because we are one body ministering to the area that we are responsible for and this is kind of an interesting thing because in there we see we see build in this we see build in 20 we see the word build in 21 and we see the build in 22 these are all different Greek words in 20 it says to finish a structure on a foundation that has already been laid is what it says when it says we are built on the foundation of the apostles in 21 it says in whom all the building fitly joined together and this is to an erected building and then in verse 22 it says you also are built together and this is to build together, to put together by building out of several things to build up one building. And that's the idea. We all know what it's like if you've ever seen a building go up. You know, you start with a pile of wood and shingles and bags of cement and all of a sudden it becomes a building over time. <laughs> Sometimes quickly if the guys are working fast, but uh, you can watch it and there's all these bits and pieces everywhere become one building. And God does that with us. He makes us into one building. And we need each part of the body of Christ. Because there are people that I could never, number one, I don't know them. So I could never you know, reach them with the gospel. Number two, there are people, even if I did know them, would look at me and say, well, number one, you're a stranger to chloride. Who are you to talk to me? Or, you know, you're too smart because you've had your college degree. I don't want to talk to you. Or, you know, maybe there's a few people here. You're too dumb. You don't have the doctorate or... You, you don't have five doctorates, you know, I don't know, but there's people I can reach and can't reach, and there's people that each one of you in here will be able to reach with the gospel and give the gospel to that others could not give it to. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. 
every person in the body is necessary. Beyond the fact that we each have different gifts. You know, if I was the one that had to do all the maintenance in this building, we'd be in trouble because I can't do maintenance very well. I try, but it doesn't usually work. But I can teach the Word of God. That, you know, and it's so important that we keep, we utilize our gifts. Uh, and we're still looking for the person that, that is the Loretta who can go out in the part, uh, yard and keep all the weeds out of it. I don't know how she managed to keep all the weeds out of this place for as long as she did. She just loved doing it. It was not a chore to her. And one thing you'll note is when you're called to do something, it is not a chore. If it's a chore, then you're probably not called to do it. Because it is, one of the things I do is I love to teach. I'm teaching more than most, I told, talk to pastors and go, I teach five days a week. And they go, what? I love to teach. It's what God has gifted me to do. I, I, I enjoy getting in and digging deep into the word and presenting it to people in a way that hopefully is understandable and helps to build them up and edify them. And it is fun for me to do this. And it's, I'm, I'm so happy that I don't have to do some of the other things that I used to do for a living. And because this is fun. And when you're doing what God wants you to do, it should be fun. Does that mean there's never a time where it's going to feel like a burden or, or hard? No. There will be those times when your, your week is stressed, like last week's vacation Bible school, where five, five days of teaching the, teaching the kids and doing crafts and all these other things, and then doing the Bible studies, it got stressful. But it wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. It was just, it was hard that week. And kind of hard this week because I'm trying to push everything in the first two days of the week so I can enjoy my time away with my wife at the retreat. But, after, but normally there's not a lot of stress to it. And when, you're, when, when I was teaching Sunday school in all those years and studying for teaching Sunday school and working full time and doing all these things, it wasn't stress. I enjoyed doing it. And so we want to find something that God has called us to do that we say, okay, this is, this is what I'm called to do. And every one of us has something we're called to do. And I can't tell you what it is normally. I say try to do as many things as you can and find what you like doing. And that's, I've done many things in churches and go, nope, this is not for me. I'm not, I don't like doing this at all. And, you know, you just keep trying and find out what God is. For some people, there are people that are really good at just telling people the gospel message and sharing the gospel message with people. I've been with those kind of people. I, I will share the gospel message, but it, be honest, it's hard sometimes for me to share the gospel message. It's, it's hard to get started. It's hard to break through. Uh, and I know it really well, and I know the ways to present it, and I do it because I know that I'm, all people are called to give that out, but some are really called to do it. And I've, met, and I've been with people who are really called to be, be evangelists, and they're amazing. <laughs> it's amazing how easy it is for them just to share the gospel with people. And they, See, that's very hard for me. It, yeah, I'm not that way. But I know that I have to be, so I will share the gospel. And I know that I missed many <coughs> opportunities that I probably should have taken. Because for me, it is a more difficult thing. Uh, and this is why I'm saying it was amazing to me that I've, on two occasions I've been out with true evangelists. And it was an amazing time because everybody, everybody they saw, they launched right into the gospel message somehow, and it just, and it didn't seem forced. You know that too, that was what was amazing to me. There was no, there was it wasn't forced. It was very natural. They'd say a couple words here, they'd say a couple words, and all of a sudden the gospel being presented. I was like, whoa! How did you, how did you get there? I didn't even notice how you got there so fast. And it's not like they were 
preaching at people, and it went, and it went over very well. Uh, but God has that, has that as a special gift for some people. Now, we're all called to do it. God said that, go you therefore into all the world, teaching and making disciples. So, I mean, it, we're all to do it. Paul went all the way, all the way to Damascus. Mm. Turkey. I mean, he went all the way to the ends of the known world from Jerusalem. Far, you know. We went to a lot of the world, yeah. He didn't. He didn't go to all the known world, but there, there's. No, but when you look at his history, he went to most of most of most of the the Roman Empire. He went to somewhere on it. I just watched Lawrence of Arabia. And, <laughs> and the disciples. And I remember Damascus. Yeah. And I looked it up in the Bible and the books. Uh, well, the disciples themselves did go to the, all the known known world. Uh, or most of the known world. Uh, we, even even in the Roman days, they knew of China, but that big mountain kind of blocked them from getting there. You know, well, except for the most intrepid yeah. traders. Uh, but they went all the way to India. They went. They, they went to England. They went to all of northern Europe. Uh, well, most of northern Europe there wasn't. But the disciples went. They went to all the world, all the known world at that time, and changed the world literally changed the world through the gospel and this is our hope you know in our in our day as we're starting to see bad things happening our hope and the hope of many out there is that there will be a big revival and we'll have one more revival that changes the world i would love to see it i don't expect it i think the return of christ is a little too soon for a big revival to happen because that will push it out 40 or 50 years you know or at least 20 and i don't have that much hope that that we have that much time left. I would love, I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to see. Re- I would love to see a revival sweep this sweep this world. I think there'll be local revivals in, in various places. So we will do everything we can to preach the gospel here in Chloride and and Mojave County and and get the word out and get see a revival. And we're seeing changes in this town. We're very slow, but we're seeing changes in this town. And maybe God will just explode in here and we'll fill this building and change this town. Uh, that is a hope that I have because this is the town that we're ministering in. So I'd love to see the revival strike here. And could that revival sweep sweep everywhere? Sure. I just don't expect it to. Um, because I just know that Christ is returning. You know, we're so close to the end and everything is, you know, working toward one world government and one, one currency and all the stuff in the book of Revelation that we're going to be looking at that it's hard for me to see us pushing it out 30 or 40 years kind of would like that because then my then if I have any grandkids they, they, they could be old before the before the end but uh, at some point kids are going to be affected it with the tribulation period so it's uh, we want to be careful of that and just look at this because we are framed together we're a building and in, and in verse 22 in whom we are building together an inhabitation of God through the spirit God indwells us as the spiritual tabernacle that should be something that really affects us because you think about this everything you do everywhere you go everything you say you're bringing God right into the middle of it and in some cases that might be scary (laughs) you know when we think about where where have we taken him are we happy about the places that we've taken God and all of us can say at some point in our time, in each of our days, and maybe even in some of our hours, no, I am not happy with where I'm taking God. And that conviction should be something that strikes at us to say, okay, 
God, I need to be aware that you're always with me. And we know that he's always with us. We know that he's always everywhere. But we forget about it. You know, I've heard people say, well, I wouldn't do such and such if my mom was standing there. I'm going, but you will with God there? Yeah, your mom is more important to what you do than God. <laughs> because we don't see God. We don't think of him being with us. When we tell a lie, when we, when we bring him into that sinful activity that we're doing or that, and an activity that we don't know that he doesn't want us to be, and we're bringing him into it and feel that conviction, we need to keep remembering we are a holy tabernacle. And then having said that, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. toward the front from where you're at. Two books toward Genesis. Oh. Excuse me, three books. I forgot Galatians. First Corinthians, chapter 3. Did you find it yet? I'm in 2 Corinthians. Okay. Chapter 3, hold Chapter on. 3. I'm there. All right, we're going to read verse 9 verse 16. For we are laborers together with God. We are God's husbandry. We are God's building. In verse 16. Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So in 16 it says, We are laborers together with God. That means we work with him. We are God's husbandry. And that is a kind of a fancy word for we're part of what he is, grows in, in, his, in, a, in a farm. <laughs> It's called husbandry, usually referring more to animals than to the field, but it's anything that happens on a farm. Uh, but God is the one that raises us. He's the one that is guiding us, leading us. And it says that we are God's building. And then we go down to 16 where it says specifically his temple. And you read the rest of it and it talks about being the foundation and that our works will be manifest and all of that. But then he says we... If any man's work abide, he shall build, that he build on, he shall receive a reward. But in verse 16, you know ye not that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And here Paul is again, just as he did with the Ephesians. We have God indwelling us. Okay, we're his temple. What are temples used for? They were worship. Worship and where the, where the, where the God was supposed to meet with, with their people. We are a temple. God meets with us. It's, we're designed for worship. We're designed to bring out who he is and to have sacrifice and worship in us. And also the God is in us. And it says, the spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 17, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For that temple of God is holy, which temple you are. All right. And God is saying... He doesn't want defiled temples. And that destruction could be as simple as just a crucifixion of our flesh that's defiling it and growing us into more of him. And if we're truly defiling our temple and we aren't responding to God, God might just take us home early and say, okay, you know, I'm tired of, tired of fighting with you, but I'm not going to worship in, in a defiled temple. I'm going to bring you back and glorify you. And then the other part would be is, are you truly part of the temple of God? And this is why it's critical for us to really examine our life. Does my fruit show that God is indwelling in me? 
does my life show that God dwells in me and that I am a, a, attached to the vine and I'm growing spiritual fruit? And very important because it's so important that it says, whoso believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that believe isn't just having the head knowledge. It's not, okay, I believe there was a guy named Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. And you know what? I even believe that he rose from the dead. Okay? But if I don't believe it was for me, that belief is worthless. Because it's, it, you know, James tells us that the devils believe, but they're not going to heaven. They're not going to be accepted by Jesus. They believe. And we need to be to the point where that belief is very much belief in that I am a sinner. I deserve punishment and I can't get to God without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of the gospel is so important. I believe that it was for me. And the critical part is that I know that I deserve punishment and I'm going to repent. And repentance is such an important part of becoming a Christian because it means to turn away from the sin that I want to do and turn to God. And that's what repentance is, U-turn. Turn away from what I want to do and, and to God. And I make that turn to him and say, I'm accepting your gift. And it's very critical. And this is why when we share the gospel, we want to give the whole gospel to people. Doesn't, we're not responsible for making them make a decision. We're not responsible for dragging them into God's kingdom. Our responsibility is just to share it. And we could be the one that plants a seed. We could be the one watering the seed. Or we might be the one that's fortunate enough to actually harvest the seed and say, they're ready to go. They're ready for the decision. I've done a lot of harvest. I've done some harvesting over the years. I've done more watering than, than harvesting. And I've probably planted a few seeds. But it is critical for us to just know our part is just to give the gospel. I'm not, I'm not the one that has to twist somebody's arm to make them make a decision. And the sad thing, especially for us in America, is there are so many people that claim to be Christians that have just a head knowledge. A head knowledge. And I come across them all the time, everywhere. You know, how do you get to heaven? Well, yeah, do good things. No, that's not going to get you. You're not a Christian if that's your, added, your, your thought of getting to heaven. And the sad thing was that I've said, when I taught VBS, I asked that question to the kids yeah. about three times over the week. How do you get from the bad kingdom to the good kingdom? Oh, you do good things. And I'd have to give them the gospel message again. And I realize it's hard for the kids to get that, but that is what they're being told by the world. That's what they're being told by some of their parents if they're talking about spiritual, anything spiritual. And unfortunately, maybe what they've been taught by other churches that they've come in contact with. The, the gift of God is through Jesus Christ and his grace, period. And I know many good Christians even that keep getting mixed up in, into works and, and, you know, and they'll get into James where it says, prove your works by, you know, prove your, prove your relationship by your work, your faith by your works. And I agree, there should be works that are, that are attendant to our salvation, but it should be God working out of us, not me, you know, striving to be good. Because I've met a lot of people who are striving to be good and they don't know Jesus because they're trying so hard to be good, trying to deserve God. And God is saying, no, it's Jesus. When you stand before, before the white throne judgment, if, you know, number one, if you're standing there, you don't know God. Because if, if you knew God, you'd be standing before the bema seat of Christ, which is the judgment of our works. 
that we let him do through us. For you stand before the white throne judgment, he's going to say, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with that gift of salvation that was out there for you? And then he says, many will be told, I didn't know you. That verse scares me. <laughs> that verse scares me a lot at times because I have to look at my life and say, okay, God, I know that I know you, but please make sure that I'm never in that place where I will stand before you and say, you never knew me. And I know that I won't be there because of my relationship with him. And I know that I have a relationship with God. And it's important that that relationship be there. And knowing that it's there and saying, God, I, I know that I'm going to stand before you at the Bema seat, not at the White Throne. But many people are going to stand at the White Throne. And it's critical for us to make sure at the minimum that all of our family has heard the gospel. And that's tell you the truth is sometimes family is the most scariest one to give the message to. But the, their family, our family needs to know this is how you get to heaven. It's not by good works. It's not even by going to church. It's not by reading the Bible. It's not by giving millions of dollars to the church or hundreds of dollars to the church. It's nothing that is a work. It's all a gift of grace. And very important that we keep that in mind and and. and Share that with nieces, nephews, grand, grandchildren, parents, uncles, <laughs> you know, nieces, nephews. They need to hear the gospel. They, they do. And they, we're not responsible for how they, how they respond to it, but we are responsible for giving it to them. And it's a little early, but we're going to end there. Next week we talked about, we'll talk about being called, and then we'll start to get the revelation. Lord, we just thank for this day. We thank you that we are the temple, that we are living stones in that temple, and that you desire to know us in a great and mighty way. And we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.